1: Hello and welcome to this week's edition of Extra Time, a web-only programme from RNZ Sport. I'm Stephen Hewson. In the programme this week, we remember Test cricketer Martin Crowe, the player regarded as New Zealand's greatest batsman.
0: 599 for
1: two, Ramanaika up again to Crowe and Crowe plays into the onside, the single is taken and completed a world record. For Martin Crow and Andrew Jones. The Warriors kick off their National Rugby League season full of hope, but can they deliver? Changes are in store for Netball's ANZ Championship, just how much longer will it remain a truly trans Tasman competition? New Zealand Football Chief Executive Andy Martin defends the credibility of the organisation after a troubled 12 months. What have the Olympic hammer thrower and economics at Princeton University got in common? Juliet Ratcliffe will enlighten us. And we hear from golfer Ryan Fox, another who's bidding for a place at Rio. Tributes are flying for the former New Zealand cricket captain Martin Crowe, who died in Auckland this week after a long battle with cancer. He was 53. That commentary we heard in our introduction was during Crowe and Andrew Jones' world record partnership of 467 which they scored against Sri Lanka at the Basin Reserve in 1991. It was, of course, also the innings where Crowe made 299. John Morrison played alongside Crowe in his first test against Australia, and he was also his manager for five years. I asked John Morrison about his memories of Martin Crowe, both on and off the field.
2: First time I saw him come out as virtually a schoolboy, playing for Auckland on that number two ground, when Wellington playing in Auckland, I can remember thinking to myself, how good's this kid? How the hell are we ever going to get him out? He was a staggeringly good player, and um, yeah, it was eighty-two, eighty-three, I think, his first series, and we we're playing the Aussies and Tomo and Lily. But he, he just oozed talent, and I'd say in terms of you know cricket gets a bit romantic at times, but in terms of style and the way he looked and the way he batted, uh, he was without equal on that count, um, and he scored some wonderful. Um, hundreds and some wonderful innings for um for new zealand and uh he was just one of those players that, that just oozes natural talent for those mere mortals like myself at the other end stabbing around um in the dark as it were at times it looked so easy but that, that's what made him great i know he's suffered a, for a long time and cancer is not um is not kind to anybody so um uh but nonetheless a very sad day for um for new zealand cricket and um a great player he was, no question.
1: You had a lot to do with him past your playing days too though, What as his manager and I mean, he was synonymous with, with Duncan Fernley, everyone wanted a Duncan yeah. Fernley magnum once Martin Crowe came on the scene.
2: Yeah, no, you did right and and uh, you know, Duncan Fernley I, I was involved and we were thrilled to have him because, I mean, he was the best player in the New Zealand team by a country mile and um, and one of the best in the world, so from that point of view, from a commercial point of view, it was great. Um, And, um, you know, he enjoyed it as well. And, and, you know, we had a number of uh, good um, opportunities and and what have you. Because a lot of people don't realise that he was very, very good from the outset. I mean, he was a wonderful 19, 20-year-old player. And most people take a wee while to mature and come into it. But... um, in many ways, I got him a few times because I thought he could have scored twice the number of runs. He was so damn good. Um, but, uh, yeah, look, I can just remember some of his shots. I think straight down the ground, he was a lovely driver of the ball. But he seemed to have so much bloody time. I mean, I think great players in any sport have the one similarity or the one thing that they have in common is time, and for us who flounder around... We all seem to be short of time, but Martin was very poor. He played against some of the best bowlers, probably crickets, senior, the likes of Tomo and Lilly, the West Indians, you know, Holding, Croft, um, Malcolm Marshall, people like that who were stunningly good bowlers. I would unhesitatingly say that he was the most stylish and best-looking batsman we've ever produced or I've ever seen on the New Zealand scene. People might get a finish up with a better average or stats or whatever. but I don't really go on that basis because, you know, a great hundred when you need it is better than a seventy-three not out when you don't need it.
1: He carried being that iconic batsman heavily, though, didn't it? That it, it, it weighed on him.
2: Yeah, it did. It did, and also, you know, he wore his heart on his sleeve, and he and he got quite emotional about a lot of things. Um, and, and I think at one stage he even burned his New Zealand blaze um, over the Ross Taylor captaincy um, uh, thing. And But that was also what made him uh, what well he was. He was very passionate about uh, cricket, very passionate about New Zealand cricket. And, you know, the cricket community has always been probably like many others. We all have our little fights and arguments, and I had a few with Martin. I make no mistake about that. And I disagreed with some of the things he did. But um, there is no limit to the, the respect I have for his ability. It was quite stunning. And um, I think in '92 uh, World Cup, uh, I remember back to that first game against Australia, we were sort of floundering around a bit. And he came in, he scored a magnificent 100 at Eden Park. And we won the game. And that really set that World Cup on fire. But, he, were, he was absolutely brilliant in that. And I also think early on in his career, it's probably a, a sign of use, but he had no fear. He'd go and carve the West Indian bowlers all over the park. Most of us would be terrified to do that because we know we'd be in for a barrage of bounces. 2.99,
1: but, that weighed on him too, though, didn't it?
2: Yeah, I'd look, look, it was sad. I, I mean, uh, that he didn't make the 300 and and uh, he deserved to, and, uh, you know, it's just one of those things. But, you know, cricket has some cruel turns and twists, always does. But, you know, it it doesn't detract from anything as far as uh, the way I look at it, whether you score 300 or 299. And, you know, a number of things weighed on him, and he got worked up about them, and at times he got overworked up about them. But it was only because he he was... uh, so involved in the game and what he thought should happen. Um, and, you know, he, he used to have some fierce for us with uh, some in the cricket fraternity over selection and who should do what and what have you. That's almost the charm of the game as well. Um, and it's almost why we stay involved because it was dead simple and we didn't have anything to argue about It wouldn't have the fascination.
1: I was talking to former New Zealand cricketer, John Morrison, about his memories of the late Martin Crowe. The journalist and author Joseph Romanos wrote the book Tortured Genius about Crowe in 1995. He then went on to help edit Crowe's own book, Roar, in 2013. He spoke to Morning Report's Susie Ferguson about the career and life of Martin Crowe.
3: I thought Crowe was our best batsman, a wonderful uh, role model for any young player wanting to learn how to bat so it's, it's undoubtedly um, his cricket expertise is, is beyond question. As a person he was interesting. I think he grew a lot as a person. He fought his own demons earlier on. Um, he felt he came into top cricket too soon and it held him back and turned him into a person who had too much fear of failure and so on. But over the last 10 years of his life, especially after he met and married Lorraine Mexted, he, 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 his personality changed a lot, I think. He he tried to chill out more and and develop more empathy with people, and felt that if he took the stress out of his life, it would help his health as well.
0: As you got to know him, what was it you felt that set him apart?
3: Um, he was a perfectionist i mean it, it, it annoyed him a lot when he played a bad shot let alone when he got out. He just he, he tried to he wanted to play the perfect innings, and of course no one can do that in cricket, but he got closer than most. And he um, expected other people to have the same sort of commitment and was annoyed when other people didn't train as hard as they should have or didn't get the most out of themselves. So it took him a long time to understand that he was probably playing at a level higher than most people would ever hope to achieve.
0: Why do you think it was that towards the end of his life he began to, to chill out, as you say, and to, to find a bit of peace?
3: Uh, well, I do think the marriage to Lorraine was a, a, a really big thing. Um, he had various um, relationships over the years, some more successful than others, but he was a, he and Lorraine were a really good match and um, she supported him well and he, he really loved her and it was a very nice relationship and I think that helped him improve himself as a person. Also, he was a father to Emma and took a huge amount of pride in going along and watching her playing tennis or whatever and um, I'm sure that helped mould him as a person as well.
0: What is your favourite moment or your... Favorite memory of Martin Crow?
3: Well, definitely when he captained New Zealand in the World Cup at home in '92. I mean, he had the it was just like the World Cup last year. Um, he had the whole country behind his team, and he played fantastically and was named Player of the Tournament. But I was always very admiring of how he took on the best attacks in the world and made it his special challenge, as he did against the West Indies here in '87 when he scored two centuries, and when he went to Pakistan in 1990. On a tour no one wanted to go on, seven or eight of New Zealand's top players pulled out of that team and he went over and scored big runs against Wazir Akram and Waka Yunus, the most fearsome pace bowling attack in the world at the time. So the, the fact that he would challenge himself against the best in the world, I was always very admiring of that.
1: That was author and journalist Joseph Romanos talking to Morning Report, Susie Ferguson. After a horror season last year, much more is expected of the Warriors when their National Rugby League season kicks off against the West Tigers in Sydney this weekend. The Warriors finished 13th last year in the 16-team competition. There's been plenty of changes in the off-season, including the signing of internationals Isaac Luke and Roger Tuivasa-Sheck, and captain Simon Mannering has stood down from the captaincy role. Matt Chatterton reports.
4: Dancing. Johnson, no way. No way. No way. Johnson has run over the score This yep. is incredible This is ridiculous.
0: This is <laughs> that Johnson magic against the Cornell Sharks in May last year was one of the Warriors finer moments in their 2015 season. Unfortunately for Johnson and the Warriors, 2015 all but ended when he suffered a season-ending ankle break midway through the year. From being a top 8 contender that would have guaranteed them a spot in the playoffs, they lost their final 8 matches and finished in 13th. It was the 4th year in a row they'd missed the finals. But now that Johnson's back to full fitness, there is an expectation from fans and media alike that the side will again be a top 8 contender. As for Johnson himself, he expects his side could finish in the top 4 for 2016, as long as he finds the form that he's known for. If I'm meeting my standards and reaching my goals that I set, coaching staff see that, players see that, then that's all I can ask for, so there's going to be things along the way that I'm going to you know, hopefully tick off and I don't want to start slow, You know, yeah. they, everyone's expecting me to, to come back from this injury and not be quite the same to start with, but I don't want that to be the case, you know, I want to start fast and um, just play well. The Warriors managing director Jim Doyle echoes Johnson's expectations.
1: Dan NRL is the toughest competition in the world, uh, so therefore you've got to make sure you've got realistic expectations. But I would certainly see us, you know, we haven't made the finals for the last four years, so that's a bare minimum. Uh, And I would hope we'd be able to push on and and hopefully get in a position where we're in at least the top six as we get a home final. Um, But that's really, you know, I mean, our objective this year would ideally be a top four side, but if we could get five or six, then that would be fine.
0: With the signings of Kiwis hooker Isaac Luke and 22-year-old Roger Tuivasa-Shek, who's already being touted as league's next best fullback, and the experience of fellow newcomers Jeff Robson and Blake Ashford, who bring almost 300 games of NRL experience. You can understand why Doyle's confident. But while there's been a lot of talk around where the club will finish this season, there's been just as much talk around the club's leadership. Simon Mannering, who's been the Warriors captain for the past six years, is standing down from the role so he can focus more on developing his individual game.
5: Yeah, I just thought uh, it'd be good for someone else to have the job. I wouldn't change anything I'd do for the club. Um, just less commitment, which is what I was sort of looking for a little bit. Uh, I've got a young family, so more time with them, and um, yeah, looking, looking forward to, I guess, putting that to one side and, and uh, being able to concentrate on my footy a bit more.
0: That captaincy torch is being passed on to 32-year-old Ryan Hoffman, who's been with the club for just one season after spending 11 years with the Melbourne Storm. His captaincy will be put under the pump straight away when the Warriors play their first game against the West Tigers in Sydney tomorrow night. For Extra Time, Matt Chatterton.
1: A major split in the Trans-Tasman netball competition is on the cards. Netball New Zealand has confirmed it's in discussions with Netball Australia about changes that could result in the top sides from each country meeting in a Champions League-style series at the end of the ANZ Championship season. That could spell the end of regular round-robin at Trans-Tasman Games. The changes are being looked at for the 2017 season. I spoke with Netball New Zealand's Chief Executive Hilary Poole about just what's in store.
6: All options are being considered um, at this point in time from from Netball New Zealand's perspective. First and foremost, our responsibility is to the New Zealand netball system and the development and growth of the game of netball in New Zealand. Um, Therefore, we've been non-negotiable in terms of retaining at least our current five New Zealand teams. Um, We've got them, uh, they're starting to perform, they're they're in a more sustainable position. Uh, We've been investing into the high-performance environment and we are committed to five strong New Zealand teams uh, in order to protect our pathways for players and and coaches in particular. We would like to see an international component with our domestic elite competition. That, That is our aim, very much so.
1: When, when you say international component, you mean Trans-Tasman matches?
6: That could be um, before, during and also in terms of some kind of Champions League or final series.
1: But it could be under uh, under a possible format that there is actually no round-robin Trans-Tasman
6: matches um, and
1: some franchises may in fact not end up playing Australian teams at all.
6: That is a possibility, um, but it's only one of the scenarios we're looking at.
1: Would you say that the Champions League style format would be the front-runner at this point?
6: I couldn't, um, couldn't say that. There, there are a number of different options um, that we're considering.
1: Would you be concerned that if teams or franchises, some of them, didn't get to play Australian teams, that that would increase the gulf between the two countries when it comes to international play?
6: We believe that, our, our teams and our athletes do need to have um, international competition, particularly through our domestic elite competition. Um, so, look, we're working out how we can maximise that. Um, and alongside that, it's the competition component, but it's also the athlete, um, you know, the training environments um, that, that these athletes um and teams developing. so so we look at both those components. But yeah, we would like to maximise the amount of international play. That's for sure.
1: Because any removal of a round robin type competition would seem to be a step backward in, in that direction.
6: I think ultimately it would depend on the quality of of, of the elite competition. Uh, but yeah, you know, as I say, look, we we're looking to see how we can best accommodate that.
1: The former Silver Ferns coach, Yvonne Willering, though, has concerns about any change that would lessen contact with Australian teams.
7: We're in a situation that we're constantly saying it allows us to, to put ourselves against Australians, but Australians probably don't say it quite the same against us, which uh, hopefully one day will happen. Um, don't forget, even in, in the ANZ, it isn't just playing against Australia, you're also playing against players from other countries and, uh, you know, like for the import players. Do you think
1: the gulf would increase between New Zealand and Australia?
7: I think at this stage, yes, it would. Uh, because, again, only, you know, like you've got 12 players within the... Sort of will then be matching their skills. I know there'll be a finals game, but it is, again, only seven players out on court in any particular final. Um, so, yeah, it's uh, it, whether it means that, uh, you know, the Silver Ferns tour more, or I actually still hope that it's a team that sits underneath it. I know we've increased the league level by putting a tier of players underneath the ANZ Championships, but, again, we're still just playing our own. I think they need to experience different uh, international styles and different players and also putting ret- Reputations on the line. So, yeah, that's something that Nepal New Zealand needs to be very aware of.
1: What, what do you think is the future?
7: With the split, uh, probably Australia. Uh, will just what well, they'll just increase their number of teams within that, um, you know, and ooh, they have certainly got got the depth. I mean, you have a look how many close games, how many close encounters they had within the ANZ Championships. You know, they were fighting uh, to get that finals berth. The same didn't happen over this side. I mean, some of the scores were really blown out. So, uh, you know, we need to within uh, ourselves. We need to look at the competition to see how we can generate, um, you know, I, I guess the enthusiasm back into it. So we can't just go and say and we'll just continue with five teams and do two rounds. I think that is not going to be the answer.
1: The players presumably too may look to head to those Australian teams. Laura Laura Langman, a case in point?
7: Yeah, yeah, it's going to be interesting. I mean, obviously, some players will have contracts in place, but the contract was for the ANZ the way it was and not two separate competitions. So, yeah, it's not just going to be about the, the game out on court. It's also dealing with the players. And, uh, you know, I guess they're just waiting around just to see what is going to develop for, for next year. But it's a bit sad that it's happening right now when we're only just starting the competition in the format that it is.
1: I was talking to the former Silver Ferns coach, Yvonne Willering. The Chief Executive of New Zealand Football, Andy Martins, says at no time did he feel he should offer his resignation, despite the own goals the organisation has scored over the past year. The all whites were disqualified from Olympic qualification for fielding an ineligible player in Declan Wynne. There was the administrative error which prevented Englishman Alex Jones transferring to the Wellington Phoenix, while New Zealand Football has been unable to arrange regular matches for the all whites I spoke with Andy Martin and asked him whether the game's credibility in New Zealand is now on the line.
8: Well, it'd be good news for Oceania. Obviously, we still would need to win the group, but um, certainly for Oceania to have a place in the World Cup would be fantastic. Even if it was um, a place going into the Asian qualifiers, which again has been talked about. Um, you know, we need something that gives us more than a, a 50-50 in a game against a confederation that we don't know who it is. It's you know, it's a draw every time. Um, because that doesn't allow us, as I've said before, to sort of plan as to who that opponent will be. So, you know, they, they, there's some, some more talk there with the new man in charge, and uh, let's just hope something comes to fruition.
1: Reform, I mean, it's been talked about at that level. Is there reform still needed at New Zealand football level? I mean, how, how do you get things back on, on track with the, obviously the, the problems you've had over the last 12 months, especially?
8: yeah i think I think context is important um you know we've had um you know we've done our annual review with the board about what what's happened in the game in the last twelve months and there's an awful lot of good things happening in the game that are getting lost by one or two of these own goals that have been uh, have transpired and you know what i what I've been trying to be at pains to tell people today is look the um the game is in good health, You know, the, the community game is growing, the, um, the, not just the volume, but actually the quality that's coming through the game, and you can see that by performances in the under-17 and under-20s uh, boys and girls, and the boys are at World Cups, both of them got out of their group, I think one of only five countries in the world to do that in the same cycle. Uh, the girls are both qualified, again, quite handsomely for the World Cups in their OFC games. So there's a lot happened around that space in the grassroots. Yeah, we've had a couple of bumps along the way, but we're trying to execute a change programme with new people. You know, the business was pretty skinny 12 months ago, and we've brought new people in who are desperately trying to do a good job to develop New Zealand football.
1: The shop window, though, remains the All Whites, and you've got to get them on the field, surely.
8: Yeah, and and there's no secrets there. We want them on the field. And, you know, what we've got to remember is the year after um, the World Cup, uh, all of the confederations bar ourselves are in World Cup qualification already. Now, our qualification doesn't start until after the Nations Cup, which is in uh, May, June. So, you know, the, the calendar is a challenge for us because trying to fill fixtures, as we found in March, when other confederations are already playing games in their World Cup qualification is a challenge. Um, and we've been desperately trying to find the right games, and we, we failed in March, and we're desperately trying to do the same for later in the year. But right now, you know, we know with certainty that the Nation Cup takes place in May June. Um, we know that the, or we believe that the World Cup qualifying starts in November. But until the Nations Cup has taken place, we don't know who's in what group. So that's the uncertainty that we're operating with, and trying to trying to find alignment with other countries outside of our confederation to get fixtures. Do
1: you think New Zealand football uh, needs to? work on its credibility
8: look as i said there's been one or two public on goals which which are very unfortunate and very regrettable but you know what, what our job is to make sure that the people who understand what's going on can see the good in the game and if you talk to the federations you talk to the franchises you talk to the coaches who've been the, through the programs they know things have changed dramatically in the last 12 18 months you know unfortunately the uh, the high profile uh, events the the own goals, you know they overshadow those because some of the things i've talked to you about don't necessarily make the news all the time they're not the sexy headlines because the all whites and the phoenix and things like that grab the headlines quite rightly so but i think we have to have to be Uh, have to have context and balance and that, you know, the reality check is that our ambitions for the international team as we laid them out in the Beyond Football plan uh, far exceed our financial resources and you know, that's the way it is, that's the way it will probably always be and we're challenging ourselves to try and close the gap. You know, and at some point if we can't close the gap then we can't continue to trade off successes in the past you know the, the money that was earned in 2010 um, is, is if you like the cash in the piggy bank that is what what's keeping us going today with the international programs so we either succeed again on the field which you can't plan for or you've got to find other ways of, uh, of finding revenue streams to support a very expensive international program
1: and how do you stop scoring own goals as you call them because that's like you say that's what the public sees and are you able to- give a guarantee that those own goals will stop coming?
8: I can give a guarantee that we've employed very good people who are desperate to do a good job. I think, um, you know, the people here were devastated by what happened with the the Phoenix and the transfer, and, you know, despite a lot of what you've heard in the media, the issue was there was an opportunity to do things right, Um, the attempt was made to do things right, the system didn't work, help was called for, we couldn't get it through in time. And um, then steps were put in place to try and get an override, a manual override. But unfortunately, common sense didn't prevail at that point because of precedent. And you put yourselves in in the shoes of FIFA, you know, there is a a world game out there. And it's not uncommon for people to miss the transfer deadline when there's volume transfers going through. The problem here is it was one of one. And, of course, precedent would suggest if FIFA gave us any leeway, then somebody else could use that in evidence later on. So whilst it was very difficult to take because everybody was in agreement with uh, the fact that this was a genuine uh, mistake and we just couldn't get it through, FIFA are obviously very concerned about precedent worldwide, and that's why, unfortunately, we couldn't get a manual override.
1: At any point, have you offered to resign over any of these issues?
8: No, what, what I take great comfort from is the stakeholders in the game give us the feedback and tell us what they think. That's what we listen to. We listen to the informed critics. We listen to the people who understand the game. I think there's a lot of, um, you know, we don't want cheerleaders. We've said that all along. We want people to give us the passion and the emotion and the tribalism that we want in the game. It's a passionate game. So people are going to get riled when they, when they see things. But I'm just asking for balance in terms of, you know, reporting because, you know, there's one or two things that have happened we happened to be in the hot seat when uh, the eligibility issue came to the table but our team the current team had to fix something that had been in place for seven eight years and um, the frustrations over the over the turn of the year about no games and um, players not uh, falling into line with the program that Anthony wanted that was nothing new and indeed whilst it was a frustration hit out by Anthony it was absolutely aligned to what we've been talking about so you know Context, you know, let's look at the quality of the game, let's look at how it's progressed, let's understand that, you know, we have different challenges to to, to rugby and cricket that's based in this country for for obvious reasons. Um, A lot of our players are away overseas, and the cost of running our international programme is considerable.
1: I was talking with New Zealand Football Chief Executive Andy Martin. The Hamilton hammer thrower Julia Ratcliffe's taken a year off from the American Ivy League University, Princeton, in an attempt to qualify for the Rio Olympics. The 22-year-old Ratcliffe, who won a silver medal at the Glasgow Commonwealth Games in 2014, has been studying economics at Princeton and New Jersey for the past three years. Her next chance to post an Olympic qualifying mark is at the National Track and Field Champs in Dunedin this weekend. She spoke to Barry Guy about her Rio quest. It's going really well, actually.
9: Um, there was a bit of a slump over the holiday period which is a bit unfortunate because I was trying to train really hard so um, that wasn't great but managed to pick it right back up Um, and yeah no it's been going really well over the last few weeks in terms of competitions I've been kind of going up um, every second week or so so yeah if I can just kind of continue that trend um, hopefully I'll hit that qualifier pretty soon so
4: what was the the slump did you put could you put that down to anything in particular
9: um, I was trying a few different things in training, um, trying to throw a lighter weight for speed, um, but I, I think my technique didn't like that too much, so <laughs> had to um, get back to training with heavier hammers.
4: So how, I mean, you won silver at the Commonwealth Games, did things sort of change after that? Did you, you know, did you take a fresh approach or anything?
9: Um, no, I've kind of had a similar approach to training over the last five or six years, Um but, yeah, kind of every year we don't do exactly the same thing, obviously, but kind of Dad is always, so my Dad coaches me, um, and he is always contacting coaches and kind of getting new technical points to work on. So even though we're kind of going out there and following the same kind of training outline, we're focusing on different things.
4: Hammer doesn't appear to be a big participation sport in New Zealand. Is, is that correct, and has that made things difficult at all?
9: Um, when I started, there was hardly anyone doing it. I could probably name all of the hammer throwers in New Zealand um, using my fingers as well. So there was probably, probably um, about 10 or so doing it. Um, but yeah, over the years, it's definitely got bigger, um, especially among younger athletes, which is pretty cool because um, it's a sport that really takes a lot of years to master. So um, it has been difficult um, just in terms of getting access to high-level competition in New Zealand. Um, you really have to go overseas for that, but hopefully that's going to change in the next few years.
4: How far do you think you are away or perhaps will it be this weekend from, you know, trying to grab an Olympic uh, qualifying standard?
9: Um, The B standard is 71 metres and I, last weekend I threw 69.27 so it would be a two just under a two metre jump to get that um, this weekend, so realistically, maybe not but I know going out there and trying to throw it as far as I can and and the hammer, you kind of—if you have a breakthrough, it does tend to be a big breakthrough, not just a few centimeters. So, kind of going out there and hoping for the best, really.
4: <laughs> so, is it—you know—the progress? Is that a training thing, or you know, do you just think, yeah, this is a good day to throw?
9: It's more on the day, kind of when you step up to throw. You never know what you're going to feel like, and you could feel physically really good, and your body just decides that. The rhythm isn't going to be there today. Um, you see it all the time in world champs. There's usually one or two people that, who have been really consistent in the past and just for some reason or other just completely lose it and will throw all three into the cage and not even make the final. So, yeah, it's definitely kind of how you, you're feeling on the day and even up until when you step into that circle to kind of see how it's going to go.
4: So you uh, have taken time out of Princeton to sort of try and get to Rio. Is that the situation?
9: Yeah, definitely. Um just trying just it was going to be too hard to um keep up the schoolwork and train full time, trying to train twice a day, um and take four four classes a semester was going to just be too hard.
4: Now correct me if I'm wrong, but Princeton I'm assuming it's sort of one of those Ivy League type schools. Um, are, are you not there on a sports scholarship?
9: Um they don't actually do scholarships as such. They recruit athletes um but everyone who is accepted into the university has access to, or are allowed to apply to financial aid, which is a means-tested um, form of, basically, financial funding to help you through. Um, so it's based on what your parents earn, and so if your parents are really rich, you won't get anything, and if your parents, so if you like maybe with a single parent even, um, you might get a full ride. So I'm getting about two-thirds of it paid for, which is pretty cool, um, so that's... Nice. Now
4: but, yeah, I'm assuming because... you're you're there and you're at Princeton because of uh, your education. Is that the, the the main reason for being there, rather than anything sporting?
9: Yeah, the primary draw was um, to study economics because it's one of the top schools in the world to do it. Um, but you yeah, know the sport has just been such an integral part of my experience there. I've just loved loved my time there and being. I'm having that sport has kind of uh, created balance for me. Um, so if, if school isn't going too well or if it's getting a bit tough or I'm a bit brain dead, I kind of go out to training and see my friends and do my training and have some fun and kind of, yeah, it's a good balance.
4: So you've had a couple of years there. Did you think that perhaps, well, this will still give me the opportunity to pursue a sporting interest?
9: Oh, absolutely. So, um, yeah, I was kind of going over there with... Um, The idea in mind that if I can keep training and keep up a good um, GPA, then I will do it. Um, But no, it just turned out to be so much fun. And so, yeah, such a great experience that I'd never consider giving it up while I was over there.
1: That's hammer thrower Julia Ratcliffe talking to Barry Guy. Now also hoping to make the Rio Olympics is the Auckland golfer Ryan Fox. Fox is returning from an ankle injury that's kept him out of competition for the past month but he is competing at the NZPGA tournament which is currently being played at Auckland's Remuera Golf Club and will next week contest the New Zealand Open in Queenstown. Fox is New Zealand's second ranked male golfer behind Danny Lee and he spoke to Matt Chatterton about his Olympic goal.
5: I like the idea it's a pinnacle sporting event worldwide and um, to have the opportunity to be involved in it is, um, is awesome. But it's, it's a funny one for us and I can understand why a lot of golfers, um, you know, feel like golf shouldn't be there because we, you grow up, we, we all grew up as golfers wanting majors and, um, you know, I, I guess the pinnacles I, for a golfer is probably the masters or for me personally would be the masters and, um, yeah, it it's, it's a little bit of a funny one, but it's certainly not an opportunity I, I I'd ever turn down
0: uh actually speaking of Rio this concern over the Zika virus I'm not sure how up to play with you you are with uh with that is that a concern at all for you
5: um oh yeah I guess so but I i, I haven't thought too much about it um I guess because I'm not a not a lock by any means I guess oh, it's probably something that all the I guess all the right agencies and um all the big wigs are looking into but um I guess it's not something at the moment I'm I'm overly concerned with. If I if I manage to hold on to the second spot, then, then it if it gets serious, then it might be um, something to look into. But you know, at the moment, it, I guess it's far enough away to not not really think about it too much.
0: What do you want to get out of this year? You're looking to try and sort of get a victory on the European tour, perhaps?
5: Yeah, I mean that that would that would be the ideal thing to happen, and and then I wouldn't have to worry about. Um, what events I'd get into for the rest of the year, but hopefully I, if that doesn't happen hopefully I've got enough events to secure a full card um for two thousand and or 2016, 2017. so um i'd love love for that to i guess that's the main goal for the year i I'd, I'd love to be able to do that and, and play well enough in the events i get to to finish in the top one ten on in Europe and get a full card for next year.
0: Um, all right, we'll move on to the um, to the PGA and the uh, Open. Um, pretty actually decent field from what I looked at just a second ago. you've Got Daniel Chopra coming down as well. Uh, what are your expectations first off for the NZ PGA? What would you like to get out of it?
5: Um, oh, I mean, I'd love to be in contention come come Sunday afternoon, and, and as I said, a win would be uh, ideal. Um, you know, any wins, any wins great, regardless of of where it is or what tour it's on. So you know, I would love to be able to. Be the winner at the end of the week, but it'd, you know, be nice just to just to play some good golf and be in contention, and um, you know, be able to take some good form into next week as well.
0: Um, you were in contention last year, at, uh, I'm pretty sure at Era. Um It's kind of like a home course for you in a way, really, isn't it? Because you are an Aucklander. Um, d- does that give you any confidence going into it? I mean, it is a course you are quite familiar with.
5: Yeah, yeah. It's it's nice to be able to play a course. I've I've played a lot and. That's certainly an advantage. Um, you know, I've, I live five minutes down the road. I get all the comforts at home. That, that all of that stuff helps, and um, you know, it's, history around a golf course helps a lot. And I've got good memories from last year, so hopefully, I can go go a few better this year. Oh,
0: all right. We'll take a look at um, NZ Open. Uh, it's a Bit of a different uh, outlook. or sorry, the course is a bit different to what uh, you're used to at Remawera. Um how does that sort of change your game plan going from Remuera to the Hills and um, Millbrook?
5: Yeah, I mean, both of the, the Hills and Millbrook are, are more resort courses, so you, they're a little bit wider. Um, you get a bit more of a chance to to get the driver out and, and I guess, take on a few of the holes. And I'll, um, the Hills is definitely one of those one of those courses you get to do that on. And um, yeah, it'll be. They're both great courses. I really enjoy playing both of them. So it'll, it'll be, it'll be a good a good week down there.
0: Do you um do you have extra drive? I suppose to try and complete that. I mean, the NZ Open would be great to win, wouldn't it? But do you, do you sort of have any extra motivation to win down there in Queenstown?
5: Yeah, I mean, I, I would say all the Kiwis have extra motivation to win down there. I, I'd personally, for me, behind a a major, um, you know, New Zealand Open would be you know second on the list probably, and. Um, everyone wants to win their home open no matter what country you're from and and it's the same for us. So it would be, uh, there's definitely some extra motivation there and um, as you alluded to, I've I've got some history down there in the past. I've had a couple of good finishes around the hills um, although one of them was was in the PGA um, when when, I think the first year went back to Queenstown. So I I know the courses, I like the courses and and hopefully I can... um, you know, have a good week and be in
1: contention again. That's golfer Ryan Fox talking to Matt Chatterton. And that brings us to the end of Extra Time for another week. Remember, if you wish to contact us, you can email us at sport at radionz.co.nz and you can also follow us on Twitter at RNZ Sport. On behalf of the Extra Time team, I'm Stephen Hewson. Bye for now.